If you have your copy of Scripture, go ahead and turn to Hebrews, book of Hebrews, chapter 2. You'll find that on page 1001 of the Church Bible. And we're looking this morning at verses 5 through 9, Hebrews 2, 5 through 9, as we make our way through this great book. The title of this sermon series is We See Jesus. This is our fourth sermon in a series we started not long ago. And we're going to look this morning at verses 5 through 9, Hebrews 2, 5 through 9. You're going to find it helpful to have your copy of Scripture and open and be reading along there with me. Let me pray for us as we come to God's Word this morning. Father, we stand here with nothing. We are like the man who comes to his friend at midnight who has no bread and who begs him for bread for those who are coming. And, oh God, we come to you as those who have no bread, who have nothing, nothing in our hands We bring simply to the cross we cling. We pray, Father, that you would feed us with the bread from heaven, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would remove the scales from every blind eye, that you would remove dullness from every heart that has been dulled by sin, any heart that is scarred by sin, any heart that is complacent, any heart that is wounded, that you would encourage and that, oh God, you would give us hope and joy and that you would set before us this morning all the riches of what we have in Christ Jesus. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would be the great prophet of the church to us, and we pray that we would know you in this place, and that we would hear your voice, and that we would hide your word in our hearts, that we might not sin against you. We do pray these things to you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. uh, Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, literally someone somewhere said in a certain place, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have put everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him... He left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I think it's probably apparent to all of us that we live in a world of uncertainty. Um, We have uncertainty about our futures. We have certain uncertainty about whether we're going to have the same job that we have next year. Some people have uncertainty about whether their marriage is going to make it. What's going to happen with their children? Are my children going to grow up? Are they going to know the Lord? Are they going to work a a good job? Are they going to be productive? Are they going to be lazy bum cheese? Are they not going to do anything? We're, We're uncertain about the future because we don't have control over the future. And uncertainty often brings fear and paralysis, and we often buckle under uncertainty, and we begin to worry about the future, and we begin to worry, uh, how can I go forward if I don't know what's going to happen? And we may then respond by trying to take the bull by the horns and try to control so that we can make sure that we have a future and are secure in certainty, and, and there's lots of different responses, and I think it's a common fear for everybody. I think everybody understands that we live in a world of uncertainty, and yet... There are a few things that are absolutely certain, 
And for believers, one of those things that God wants you to be certain about is that there is a world to come that you are going to inherit, that you're going to be heir of everything, that you are going to dwell in the new heavens and the new earth with the risen and glorified Jesus for all eternity. And the question that the writer of the Hebrews is going to bring before us today is the question of how can I know for sure that there is a world to come, that the salvation that has been spoken about is as great as the men who have written this book under inspiration have said it is, how can I be assured that there is a certain future, a certain hope set before me? How can I know that? And he's going to answer that by saying, we see Jesus. And that we don't see the world to come and we don't see everything in front of us, but we see Jesus and we preeminently see Jesus crucified, crowned with glory and honor through the suffering of death. And in seeing Jesus by faith, we are assured of everything that we have by his saving work at Calvary. And that's the point, really, of Hebrews 2, 5 through 9. Here you have the writer writing to a group of people who have had their houses taken away. We learn in chapter 10, he says, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods for following Jesus. They had every reason to be doubtful about the future. They had, humanly speaking, every reason to wonder, how, how do I know this is worth it? How do I know that having left everything and being willing to lose my house and my possession and family members who have broken with me because I've followed this man called Jesus who claimed to be the savior of the world, how do I know that it's worth it? And some of them had concluded it's not worth it. Some of them had turned away. They'd made a profession. They had turned away. They'd gone back to Judaism. They had gone back to temple worship and the sacrificial system. They had denied that Jesus had come in that sense and had accomplished all things and was in himself everything that they needed for life and salvation and eternity. And the writer is now exhorting them, as we saw last week in verses 1 through 4, to give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. And the things we have heard is the great salvation. The great salvation. So great A salvation. Now, the writer of Hebrews is going to do a number of things here in verses 5 through 9. I actually think Hebrews 2, 5 through 9 may be my favorite section of this entire book. I love it. I love all of chapter 2. Chapter 1 is going to focus on the deity of Jesus, that he's God. If you you took a 30,000-foot flight over Hebrews 1 and 2 and you looked down, chapter 1 would look like Jesus is God and chapter 2 would look like Jesus is man. Looking out of the plane, chapter one, Jesus is God. Chapter two, Jesus is man. Jesus is God, Jesus is man. That's the point of chapter one and two, and everything else is related to that. He's better than everything. He's better than the angels. He's better than every prophet and every religious leader. He's better. He's provided the greatest salvation. He's provided eternal life. He's met eternal death with eternal life. He's done everything. He's purified our sins. And I think what the writer is doing now is he is focusing in on the benefits of Christ's death on the cross for us through the rest of chapter 2. That's important because at the beginning of this chapter, of chapter 1, he said that Jesus was the brightness of God's glory, the exact representation of his person, that he made everything and that he sustains everything. But it's as if the writer of Hebrews is saying, Jesus being God, making everything and sustaining everything is not the greatest thing you need to know about Jesus for the future, but that it's that he came and he suffered and he atoned for our sins and he secured the world to come and he secured man's original destiny. 
as the second Adam. And that's what he's going to tell us first. Notice what the writer says in verse 5, that, that there was a, a, an original goal for humanity. There was an original goal for humanity. First, the writer says it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we're speaking. Now, remember, you have that angel thing going on. Jesus is better than the angels because angels are really great. And everybody knows how powerful angels are to some extent. And Jesus is better than the angels. But Jesus became man. And now the writer's going to say, and the world to come, the future world, the new heavens and the new earth. I'll get there in a second. That was not made subject to angels, they're not going to rule it, but man is going to rule it. Redeemed men are going to rule the world to come. And that that was God's original plan. Notice what he does there in verse 6. Now, look in your Bible, verse 6 to verse 8. He's going to quote a portion of Psalm 8. The writer's going to reach back to the Psalms again. He's going to go to Psalm 8. He's going to see in Psalm 8 some pretty amazing things. If we went back to Psalm 8, this is what it would say. Oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Uh, you've set your glory above the heavens out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants. You have ordained strength because of your enemies to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you, that you take an interest in him? You've made him... A little lower than the angels, you've crowned him with glory and honor. You've put all things in dominion under him, all sheep and all oxen, birds of the air, fish of the sea, everything that passes through the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. And the point of that psalm is that at creation, God's original intention was that man in Adam, in an unfallen condition, would take dominion of the world and would exhibit the glory and beauty of God as the image bearer of God, ruling the world in a perfect God-like way, exercising God-like dominion and representing the goodness and beauty and holiness and perfections of God. And Adam would take the garden out and would turn the world into the garden. The garden was just one little place on the newly created world, and Adam would take that garden out, and he and his descendants would take dominion over the earth, and he would name the animals. He would see a giraffe, and he would say, giraffe, and, and you would say, how would he know that was a giraffe? That's what it is. God made the giraffe, and he would name the animals, and he would rule it, and he would, he would investigate the world, and he would develop things, and he would do everything we do now, but he would do it for God. And you see, now the world doesn't look like godly dominion has occurred. Adam has rebelled against God. Adam has horribly missed the mark. The destiny of God for humanity to have dominion over the whole world and over everything in it has been, has been horribly marred and lost, so much so that I would argue that angels... And here I'm thinking of the devil and his fallen host seem to have more dominion over this world than image bearers of God. The world is under the sway of the evil one, the writer will say. Men do develop. They do take dominion, but they do it in an ungodly way. Nations fight against each other. There's hostility. There's enmity. There's strife. There's division. There's an ungodly use of the things that God wanted man to use for his glory because Angels have, in a sense, taken dominion over the world, but it was God's original intention that man should have the destiny 
of ruling over the world God has created. And what the writer does is he looks back to Psalm 8 and he doesn't see man's destiny fulfilled in Psalm 8. He sees it as a destiny that's going to be fulfilled in Jesus, the second Adam. What he realizes is the first Adam didn't fulfill that mandate of Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, multiply, spread out. And, and what Adam did was he brought sin and corruption and death. He brought all of humanity into slavery to the evil one. He, in a sense, sold the world over. And he sold all of us into sin by his disobedience so that the Bible says we were born dead in sin, slave to sins, walking according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air. And so the writer looks back at Psalm 8, and he sees that in Psalm 8, it says about man generally, that in, even in his created state, he's still very limited, he's still finite, he's still weak, even in perfection, Adam was still finite, and he was still in a humbled state. And yet, the writer sees that man has been crowned with glory and honor and that God's plan and his destiny for mankind was to put everything in subjection under mankind. Everything under mankind. And so the writer, really an amazing theologian, looks back into Psalm 8 and he sees worlds of biblical theology. He sees, he sees the whole panorama of human history. And he sees that even though that destiny, that original destiny for man subjecting the world has not been realized, it has been secured in the person and the saving work of Jesus. And so notice what he says there in verse 9. I'm sorry, the latter part of verse 8. Now I'm putting everything in subjection to him, that is to mankind. He left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. We don't see a redeemed church ruling everything. Now, I think sadly, some Christians, especially in America, think it's our job to rule everything. Now, I think it's our destiny to rule everything. But I don't think here and now it's our job and calling to rule everything. I think it's our job and calling to proclaim Christ, to live as our Savior in union with him, to know him, to do good works, and to let our light shine before men so that God gets glory, but that we will one day rule the new heavens and the new earth. And that it is the church's destiny, redeemed humanity, to rule the new heavens and the new earth wherein righteousness dwells. And I say that because, notice what he says in verse 8, presently we don't see everything in subjection to him. When you look around, it doesn't look like Christians rule the world. It doesn't. Because in the here and now, we don't yet see everything put under subjection to the redeemed humanity. But notice what he says. How do I know? How do I know that these things are true? How, do I, how can I be certain that that's what's coming? How can I be sure that that's where we're heading and moving as Christians? He says, you can be sure because though we don't see everything put in subjection under him, we see Jesus. We see Jesus. My favorite phrase in the whole book, we see Jesus. 
spiritually. We see Jesus. We know that Jesus is who he said he was. We know that in his person, and this is the really the, the second big point, that, that the, the goal of humanity, the destiny that God had planned for humanity at the beginning, what you read in Psalm 8 is fulfilled in Jesus, that he becomes the man who will subject all things to himself because he is God, because he is God over all, and he becomes man, and he becomes the second Adam. He's the heavenly man. He's the one who comes from heaven to earth and and it's really interesting in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul parallels the first Adam and the last Adam, the first man and the last ant man, he doesn't draw an identical parallel. He says, the first man was created, the second man was resurrected. The first man was created from the dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven and he was raised up. And he ushers in the new creation. And I think what the writer of Hebrews is doing is he's saying the very same thing. He is saying, we see Jesus, the person of Jesus. And and that's not just Jesus on the cross. We'll get to that in a second. It's who he is now exalted. He's not on the cross. He's in heaven at the right hand of God. And we see as we read the scriptures, we see him. And we see all that he is. And we understand that it took a heavenly man to fulfill man's destiny after Adam lost it. Adam lost it. The second Adam doesn't just bring it back to what Adam does, but he makes it better and more secure and more established. And Jesus gains dominion over everything. Jesus gets dominion over everything. It's interesting that he could not have done that as merely God. He could not... That might sound like a, a statement you may not agree with initially. Just merely as God, he could not have put everything under dominion of man unless he had become man. It was necessary. It was necessary that God become man in order to fulfill the destiny of man that man lost by the sin of Adam. And notice what the writer says. He says, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to mankind, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. I think what he's doing is he's drawing our attention not to Jesus in his divine nature, but Jesus as man. And he's saying he for a time became lower than the angels. We've talked about that already. Angels are always ministering to Jesus. Jesus is ministered to angels after his temptation. An angel comes and strengthens him in the Garden of Gethsemane before his sufferings. He says, don't you think I can call 12 legions of angels and they'll come and they'll help us? That he would have even needed the help of angels. That for a time, the God who made angels became lower than the angels to secure for us the new creation and to fulfill man's destiny. And so I don't need to see, and this is the big point, you don't need to see everything that's put under man. You don't need to see the end product because we see Jesus. And in seeing Jesus by faith, we are assured that everything God has said and everything God had spoken from Genesis 1, 26 through 28 on is certain and sure and that we are heirs of that. Now, I want to back up. I want to deal with this phrase, the world to come of which we speak. Go back to verse 5. It's not to angels that God subjected the world 
to come of which we're speaking. Now, if you're reading through Hebrews, you may come to that phrase and be like, what are you talking about, world to come of which we speak? Where did you talk about the world to come? Because it doesn't seem, and I'm, I'm being honest, if, if you don't wrestle with this, you probably haven't read it through carefully enough and thought about it, it should strike you as, what do you mean the world to come of which we're speaking? He's only, he's only spoken 18 verses. Where did he talk about the world to come in 18 verses? Well, here's what I'm going to argue. He talked about the world to come, and I want you to pay very close attention, if you will, to verse 2 of chapter 1, at the beginning of the book. The Son of God, we read in these last days, the Son was appointed heir of all things. I think the world to come is bound up in that phrase, heir of all things. Jesus inherits everything. Jesus, in his incarnation and work, gets the inheritance as a man so that a man inherits everything that was God's by right, and God gives it to man because God becomes man, and the Son inherits everything. And that's the world to come. I think the world to come is bound up in heir of all things. Then, notice this. Notice a little further down that in verse 6, he says, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world. I think in the Greek it should be when he again brings the firstborn into the world, and that's the world to come. That's the new creation. Let all the angels of God worship him. In the consummation, when God takes this world, and, and we'll get to this in a second, and changes it and turns it into something new and righteous and holy and pure and what it should have been, the angels will be there worshiping the God-man Jesus in the world to come. So I think the world to come is there. Now, I want you to notice this. Two more quick things. Notice verse 10 and 11 of chapter 1. You, Lord, in the beginning, speaking about what Jesus did, the Father says to the Son, you laid the foundations of the earth, the heavens are the work of your hand, they will perish, the heavens and the earth will perish, That you're, the, the, the planet you're sitting on right now is going to perish, even though Jesus made it, they will perish, but you remain, they will wear out like a garment, like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. Remember, I took off my jacket in that hokey illustration, and I rolled it up, and I said, that's what Jesus is going to do with creation. He's going to take it off, he's going to roll it up, and he's going to turn it into something new. That's the world to come. That's where I think the world to come, of which the writer is speaking about. Jesus inherits all things, that's the world to come. The angels are going to worship him when he comes into that world again, that's the world to come. Then God the Father says to the Son, you're going to take off creation, and you're going to, they're going to perish, and you're going to turn it into something new. Just take it off like a garment and just fold it up and make it something new. And then, notice this, this is where you are. Verse 14 of chapter 1, he says, Are they not all ministering spirits, speaking about the angels, sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. That's you and me if you're a Christian. You are an heir of salvation. So Christ was the heir of all things. By faith in him and by union with him, you become the heir of all things. Those all things fall under the title salvation for us, 
Salvation includes more than just you get your sins forgiven and go to heaven. You inherit the new heavens and the new earth. You get everything. So that in chapter 2, when it's called so great a salvation, I think that's what's included. Not only do you not go to hell, not only do you get your sins forgiven, not only do you get a new nature, not only do you know you're going to be with Jesus, but you are going to be heir of everything and you're going to live in the new heavens and the new earth and you're going to have dominion over everything. Over everything. That's what the Christian has coming. Dominion over everything. I can't even fathom what that's going to be like. To have absolute dominion over everything God has created. And what the writer tells us is we know that we're going to get that because we see Jesus. Because he was made a little lower than the angels. Now, thirdly, I want to I press home for us that... All of this is only possible because he was humbled, became lower than the angels for the suffering of the death that he tasted death for everyone. Now, when the writer says there, we see Jesus in verse 9, we see him, we see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. He is telling us that though we see Jesus not just on the cross, when we look at the cross, when we look at what the scripture says about the crucifixion of the Son of God, we see one who was greater than the angels, made lower than the angels, crowned with thorns and thistles for the suffering of death. He was crowned. He tasted death for everyone. He had to first be humbled in order to get that dominion over all things for himself and for us. And I want to say this as reverently as I can. Jesus could not have redeemed the world unless he had suffered. Jesus, God could not have just become Jesus, walked, taught the Sermon on the Mount, told you a lot of ethical things, and then taken dominion of all things for himself and for you. Notice what the writer says. He says he was made for a little while lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. The glory and the honor with which Jesus was crowned was because he endured the suffering, and in Greek it's of the death, the suffering of the death. You're all going to die. I'm going to die. Everybody dies. What's special about Jesus' death? Why why is his death highlighted? If everybody's going to die, it is the death. It is the suffering of death in which, notice what the writer says, he, by the grace of God, tasted death for everyone. He put himself in his people's place on the cross for our sins. His bloodshed was for us. He substituted himself. He not only purchased you with his blood, but he secured the new creation. He secured the world to come. The bloodshed of Jesus not only redeemed his people, it secured the new heavens and the new earth. It secured the new heavens and the new earth. So that, and here's the big point, as we go through life and we are faced with uncertainty, maybe you'll lose your job, maybe you'll lose a family member, maybe your spouse will leave you as awful as that would be, maybe your child will rebel and spend many years in rebellion, But we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. And when we look at the cross and we see our need for him and we feel our need for him and we understand the greatness of what's occurring there, we press on with hope. 
even if the world around us is crumbling. The psalmist said, even though the mountains be cast into the sea. What he's saying is, everything around me, everything I know, everything I find comforting, falls apart. We see Jesus. We see him on the cross. We see him tasting death. That doesn't mean he just took a little nibble. It means he swallowed it. He endured it. He participated in it. He defeated death. He rose victorious. And now, as we look at him, we're assured of everything that the writer's telling us. What difference should this make? It is, I think, I think that these things are the fuel for us persevering in Christianity. John Piper wrote a book called Future Hope. It's his point that we are driven on by grace through future hope. Now, that's because of what Jesus did at Calvary. Notice what the writer says at the end of the section. All of this at the end of verse 9 is by grace. Notice that. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. The grace of God means salvation and hope and the the guarantee that you're going to inherit everything, not because of anything you did. The grace of God means all that for you, and it means death for Jesus. You ever thought about that? We talk about grace. We love grace. When you hear about grace, grace meant death for Jesus. By the grace of God, he tasted death for everyone. God was so gracious to Jesus, he died. That's what that's saying. I know that sounds strange. God's grace to Jesus meant he suffered for our sins to secure the new creation. And that presses us on. That presses us on. We, everything in front of us that we can't see don't know how many days you're going to live, how many kids you'll have, none of it. We don't know any of it. We don't know what's going to happen, but we see Jesus. And that enables us to endure hardship. I think, and I'll close with this, we don't know hardship in this, this culture that we're in. But I do know that the Hebrews knew hardship, and most of the first century church knew hardship. And I know that the Holy Spirit has taken this and has said, listen, There is going to be a day when there's not going to be any hardship. When you're going to rule everything, there's not going to be any hardship. It's going to be amazing. I remember being on Sea Island when I was a brand new Christian, walking near the the water on some beautifully kept property, and uh, no trespassing signs all around. My friend and I, as we walked, and he said, my father owns all this. I, I thought, Wow. Never heard of, he was like, doesn't matter, my father, I'm going to get all this. My friend understood that even though here and now we may not have the life that we want in the hereafter, you can't even begin to understand the inheritance that God is going to give us. And that enables us to suffer, to go through hardship, to face uncertainty, but we got to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus by faith. That's it. I would ask you, are you actively seeing Jesus? Are you actively seeing him with the eyes of faith? Are you, is in the eyes of your heart, are you fixing on Jesus? Are you meditating on the cross? Do you think about what that means for you in light of your sin, in light of all of the hardships of this world, how much you need Jesus? Are you keeping your eyes? The book of Hebrews, I'll close with this. It's magnificent. Because it's the greatest book calling for perseverance. And it uses phrases like, we see Jesus and consider him and looking unto Jesus and enduring as seeing him who is invisible. And, and that call 
to see, to see him who was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. He tasted death. I'll say this final thing. Maybe you fear death. We'll come to this next week. He tasted death so that we pass through death. Because death is that last great enemy. That's what the scripture says. The last enemy to be defeated is death. We see Jesus who tasted that death for us so that we don't have to have fear in death. We'll come to that next week. I hope that you'll be encouraged as you meditate on the greatness of the salvation that God has given us in Jesus, that you'll actively be seeking to fix your eyes on him. That happens by reading the scripture, by meditating on the gospel, by subjecting yourself and submerging yourself in God's word, um, in prayer and worship and fellowship and talking about Jesus. I hope that you'll be encouraged that if you're in Jesus, you're going to be heir of everything. You're going to get everything. It doesn't matter how hard your life is right now. It's good news. You're going to get everything because he's heir of all things and we see Jesus. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, we, we need you to set your son before us, to see him who was humbled and then exalted, who through the suffering of death, tasted death for us, who secured the world to come, who who gained the, um, the consummation of man's destiny and that we know that we who are in him are on our way to glory. We pray, Father, that you would give us grace to set our hope fully upon the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would give us grace not to see all the distracting things in the world around us and circumstances and be weighed down by them, but to see him We pray that you would increase our faith, Father. We pray that you would establish us by grace. We would understand more of what we have in the Lord Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen.